Well, question for you. What sorts of things does the Holy Spirit convict you about? Let's turn to John chapter 12 this morning before we turn to John chapter 16 in the upper room. John chapter 12. In John 12, we observed a very important shift in a verb tense. Throughout John's gospel, we have learned of the coming hour of Jesus' glory. Sometime in the future, Jesus will be glorified. But suddenly, in John 12, 23, when certain Greeks came seeking Jesus, Jesus exclaimed, the hour has come. Before it will come, now it has come. The hour for the Son of Man to be glorified. And the context makes clear that Jesus was referring to the hour of his glorious death and resurrection. Jesus then spoke of an important event connected with his death. In verse 31, Jesus decreed, Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And notice the double occurrence of the word now. Jesus is not talking about an event that's still future to us. He is talking about his own moment in human history. Satan, the ruler of the world system, will be cast out, destroyed at his cross. Hebrews 2 and verse 14 tells us that through death, Jesus destroyed the one who had power over death, that is, the devil. Satan was defeated by the Lord Jesus Christ on his cross. We are not waiting for that to happen. It is a fait accompli. The serpent crusher promised in the Garden of Eden has already come and has already succeeded And at the resurrection, Jesus claimed, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given unto me. And he doesn't relinquish that. All of this should be non-negotiable for us as Christians. But isn't the devil a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour? Yes. Yes, indeed. Lions roar when they have been mortally wounded A mortally wounded lion full of wrath is a formidable foe. But in the name of Christ, we can resist the devil and he will flee. That's our guarantee. When God commands Satan to flee, he has no choice but to run. Resist the devil in the midst of temptation. Call on Christ, his conqueror. And when Satan sees Christ coming, he will scamper off like a pathetic coward. He has no choice. Satan's power has already been stripped away. But many Christians do not live like they actually believe that. And for that reason, I want to return to this topic and really make sure our church family is just settled in our conviction about Satan's destruction by Christ. If you're going to win the battle with the flesh and with the world, you have to do so with the deep-seated conviction that Christ has already conquered. 
So with that in place, let's return now to John chapter 16. Jesus is in the upper room, and John will use, or Jesus rather, will use a very important word, the word conviction in conjunction with the Holy Spirit and Satan's destruction. In John 16, Jesus has already formally introduced the Holy Spirit. Beginning with verse 8, Jesus describes what the Spirit will do when He comes at Pentecost. He will convict the world about three things in particular. Verse 8, and when He comes, He will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. In verses 9 through 11, just elaborate on those three areas. In verse 9, concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. That is to say, the Spirit will convict people of their disbelief. In verse 10, concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer. That is to say, the Spirit will vindicate Jesus Christ as a truly righteous one when he rises from the grave and ascends to the Father's right hand. He was righteous all along. But let's zoom in today on one incredible statement, the statement in verse 11. Concerning judgment, the Holy Spirit will convict concerning judgment because the ruler of this world is judged. The Holy Spirit will convict you that Satan has been judged. So here's my question again. What sorts of things does the Holy Spirit convict you about? Verse 11 is typically not the first thing that comes to mind, is it? But do you have a deep and settled conviction about Satan's judgment? In my lifetime, I've supposed that I've heard hundreds of sermons on the Holy Spirit's convicting power regarding my sin. That's all true. But I actually cannot recall a single one emphasizing the Holy Spirit's conviction concerning Satan's judgment. A similar imbalance might very well affect many Christians all around the world. How do we interpret the world if we're not settled in our conviction that Satan has been judged? I wonder whether we live in perpetual fear of some sort of nefarious satanic evil that is about to destroy life as you know it. Do you live in perpetual fear that he will soon destroy the church? Many a Christian nationalist in America is haunted by a fear that his whole world is on the verge of a satanic overthrow. Christians live in constant fear of a nefarious global elite, the Illuminati, the Trilateral Commission, Big Pharma and its vaccines, Vladimir Putin, the rise of China, the devaluation of the dollar, the collapse of the stock market, or the coming of the Antichrist, or a one-world government, all these things, yes. And behind it all is somehow Satan. Now, granted, there may be genuine elements of concern in some of our fears. All right? I don't deny that. We are never called to be naive. Paul told the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians 2 and verse 11, we are not ignorant of Satan's devices. We should be aware that there are wicked forces at work in the world. No doubt about it. Satan is crafty. 
But my concern is that an overemphasis on everything wrong with the world can actually crowd out a person's conviction that Jesus Christ is already reigning. He's already frustrating the schemes of the devil. In fact, God was doing this before Jesus' cross. Listen to Job 5 and verse 8. This is going way back in history. As for me, Job says, I would seek God, and to God would I commit my cause. And he goes on to say, he frustrates the devices of the crafty so that their hands achieve no success. So I want to know, can we really just live out Job's conviction, especially now that Jesus has been given all authority in heaven and on earth? This is the terrible irony in Christian circles. We only know about Satan through the Bible, yet many Christians are reticent to believe what the Bible actually says about Satan. Right? We only know about Satan through the Bible, but do we really believe what the Bible says about Satan? As Christians living under Christ's reign, we are called to live out the reality of Psalm 2. The psalm acknowledges that wicked nations just rage against God. The nations attempt to throw aside God's moral restraints. That's been happening ever since the garden. Don't be ignorant about the world's agenda. However, the most diabolical conspiracy in world history Concern the raging of the nations to put God's Son on a cross. Friends, could there be a more evil conspiracy than the plot to murder God? Is there a more evil conspiracy than that? That evil will never be surpassed. So how did God respond? Psalm 2 says he roared with laughter. The why of Psalm 2 means something like, why bother? You nations, why do you even attempt to throw off God's restraints? It's not going to work. The psalm goes on to say, as for me, God says, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. That's what was happening on the cross. That was God's king that they inaugurated unwittingly. So again, friends, we do not deny the existence of evil in our world. A mortally wounded Satan is furious and full of rage against God and his people. Pagan worldviews proliferate proliferate year by year. And Paul actually warned the church against the encroachment of evil in the latter days. The latter days refer to the days beginning with the cross and moving forward, the second half of human history. But what does the angel of Revelation say? Revelation 14 and verse 6. Then I saw another angel flying directly overhead with an eternal gospel to proclaim to those who dwell on earth, to every nation and tribe and language of people. And he said with a loud voice, Fear God and give him glory because the hour of his judgment has come and worship him who made heaven and earth and sea and the springs of water. Let the world fear all those other things. Let the world fear Satan. But friends, as believers, we must fear God. Our Christian duty is to fear God and give glory to Him. 
Our delight is in his eternal gospel being proclaimed to every tribe and tongue and nation. You recall what Solomon concluded in Ecclesiastes 12 and verse 13? Here's the end of the matter. All has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. Fear God. What was God's expectation of Abraham? When Abraham was willing to sacrifice his own son, the angel of Yahweh responded, I know that you fear God. So has the Holy Spirit ever just really convicted you with the words of verse 11? Has he convicted you that the ruler of this world is judged? Friend, if you're not convicted of that, then simply ask God for more conviction on this point. Right? You ever ask God for conviction about something in your life? I have, right? Well, ask Him to give you more conviction about Satan's judgment. We ask for the Holy Spirit to come along and help us in the battle with the flesh. We come to the communion table and we ask for His help to overcome lust and attitudes and selfishness and sensuality. Lord, help me. Well, why not ask Him to help us win the battle for our minds? But who's really running the world? You might think that you're winning the battle because, well, you haven't looked at pornography, and you haven't gossiped, and you haven't been stingy with your possessions. But all the while, you could be losing the battle with your mind. You may think that you're wise and discerning because you've got the world systems all figured out. But at the same time, you actually could be losing the battle with your mind because you have a greater obsession with the devil than you do with the reign of Christ. That's not healthy. If you are spending more time fretting over the evil of the world than you are relishing in the good news of the gospel, then you are actually off balance. And you are losing the battle for your mind. You really, you really need the Holy Spirit's conviction on this point. So at this point, what I want to do is consider a rather lengthy illustration of how the scriptures can be used irresponsibly to keep people in perpetual fear. Des Griffin, in his book, The Fourth Reich of the Rich, takes his reader on a quick tour from the Garden of Eden through Christ and the founding of the church before launching in the prophecy. And Griffin identifies four major characters in the biblical drama. Now, who are your four major characters in the Bible? Here are his four. Number one, Satan. Number two, Nimrod. Number three, Semiramis. And number four, Simon Magus. Curiously, two of his central characters appear only once in the Bible, and one doesn't appear at all. And Frank, he's actually not the only author to look for some sort of duplicitous plot in the Bible and make much of some obscure passage while actually failing to acknowledge the overall plot line of Scripture, as if there's some sort of secret code embedded in there waiting for one of us to figure out one day. And Griffin is fascinated with Satan. He correctly portrays him as an avaricious, power-hungry ruler of darkness. But his portrayal of Satan served to introduce a fatal interpretational error that actually undergirds his whole book. 
One of his chapter titles is an interrogative. Here's the title, Who Rules the World? Who Rules the World? Commenting on Satan's temptation of Jesus Christ, Griffin then writes, The reader should notice that when Satan claimed to have control over all these things, the kingdoms of the world, Christ did not deny this reality, Matthew 4, 9 through 11. Further, he says, notice carefully that Satan claimed that he had been given control over the whole earth and that it was under his authority and that Jesus didn't deny that for a second. He knew it was true. Griffin leads his reader to conclude that actually Satan rules the whole world. Next, Griffin suggests that Christ is merely waiting in the offing to one day get his chance to rule. Griffin notes, at his temptation, quote, Christ qualified to succeed Satan. But Griffin adds, quote, Christ didn't assume that authority immediately. Instead, he had to die. He had to be raised from the dead and then ascend to heaven and act as our mediator before the Almighty God. Griffin creates the impression that Christ has now departed from history and Satan now just reigns freely. Christ merely qualified to succeed Satan at some future date. So according to Griffin, Christ is not actually reigning currently. Satan is reigning. After vetoing Christ's authority, Griffin develops what I call a devil-centric worldview. Not a Christocentric worldview, but a devil-centric worldview. And with Satan on the throne, there is no end to speculation that endlessly captures the minds of Christians. Now, is this really the way that we're supposed to read the Bible? Like, we're just sort of waiting on Christ one day to finally come back and take over? Or was the Bible really about Christ all along? What does the scripture actually say to Griffin? Well, first of all, Satan is a liar. The fact that Jesus did not respond to Satan's claim to rule the kingdoms of the world should not be interpreted as Christ's endorsement of Satan's claim. Do you you really trust what comes out of Satan's mouth? Do you really trust what he says? He's very powerful. He's very witty. He is called the prince of the power of the air, but he is still a liar. Second, Satan's claim to rule the nations is contradicted by countless Old Testament passages. Let's actually turn at this point to Psalm 103. Psalm 103. I refer to the Old Testament because in the time of Christ's temptation, the New Testament had not yet been written. And let's just make sure that we are really settled about this. Sometimes Christians view Satan as reigning through the Old Testament right up to the cross and the resurrection, but even that's not true. Way back in Deuteronomy 10, don't turn there, verse 14, we read, Behold, the heaven and the heaven of heavens is the Lord's, thy God, the earth also, and all that therein is. Or notice Psalm 103 and verse 19. The Lord, all capital letters, Yahweh, has established his throne in the heavens and his kingdom rules over all. That is a theme that's echoed just right through the Psalms. Psalm 9 and verse 7, But the Lord sits enthroned forever. He has established His throne for justice. Psalm 11 and verse 4, The Lord is in His holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. His eyes see, His eyelids test the children of men. 
Psalm 45, verse 6, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of your kingdom is a scepter of uprightness. Psalm, 1, Psalm 47, verse 8, God reigns over the nations. God sits on his holy throne. Psalm 93 and verse 2, your throne is established from of old. You are from everlasting. There are some 16 references to a throne in the Psalms. A few of them refer to David's throne, which of course is really the throne of Christ. And the others refer to God's throne. Satan is never said to have a throne. If you were to read through the book of Daniel, you would notice a central theme of Daniel is actually God's sovereignty over all the nations. He can predict exactly what they're going to do. And it was the golden-headed Nebuchadnezzar, the most powerful autocratic monarch who ever lived, who was humbled like a barnyard animal by God, who finally came to his senses and who confessed his kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and his dominion endures from generation to generation. Thirdly, Jesus Christ was not attempting to qualify to succeed Satan, as Griffin claims. This frankly strikes me as blasphemous. Would you turn back to Psalm 2? Jesus did not receive a kingdom from Satan. Jesus, friends, was not Satan's replacement. Jesus says in Luke 22 and verse 29, listen to these words, My Father assigned to me a kingdom. Not Satan. My Father gave me the kingdom. Look at Psalm 2 and verse 6. The Lord says, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. God has his own king. And who is God's king? Well, verse 7, I will tell of the decree the Lord. This is the Lord's decree. The Lord has said to me, you are my son, Today I have begotten you, a reference to the resurrection. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. God appoints his own begotten son, ruler of the nations. This is God's decree. This has nothing to do with Satan. This is God's decree. For those of us who were here during our Matthew series, you'll recall that we worked right through Matthew's gospel and it kept leading up to that climactic statement at the end of chapter 28, Matthew 28, verse 18. At the resurrection, Jesus claimed, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. That's Psalm 2 fulfilled. Fulfilled at the resurrection. And Christ was equally emphatic when he appeared to John on the island of Patmos. Many decades later, Revelation 2 and verse 27, he said, I myself have received authority from my Father. It didn't come from Satan. It came from his Father. Now, Griffin claims Christ did not assume that authority immediately. Christ claims he did 
and he received it from the Father. At the resurrection, friends, an incarnate man was placed in permanent, immovable, everlasting rule over all of God's creation. And if you miss that, we'll just go back and read Matthew over and over and over again until you get it. This is what God did. Now, let's turn to Matthew chapter 16. I realize we're going all over the place this morning. All right, we will come back next week and make forward progress with John chapter 16. But I want to examine a passage that we looked at several years ago when we were in Matthew 16 that has proven a little disruptive for people. Matthew chapter 16. In Matthew 16 and verse 18, Jesus refers to the founding of the church. First time he refers to the church. In Matthew 16, 18, Jesus says this, And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Now, you need about a month to work through that servant, for that, through that verse. There's a lot going on there, all right? But I want to focus in on that little phrase, gates of hell. Ever since the publication of Dante's Inferno, people have been... Inter- What's the word I'm looking for? Yes, people have been tempted, tempted to interpret, that's what I'm after, <laughs> tempted to interpret that phrase, gates of hell, all right, as some sort of mysterious reference to Satan's armies coming up out of hell, making war on the church, as if there's this whole underworld down there of Satan and all of his hosts ever trying to conquer Christ's church. Satan sits down in hell like a great red dragon. He sits on a throne and he commands his demon hordes to come up out of the underworld and assault the church. But is that really what Christ was talking about? What are the gates of hell? Well, the Greek text reads, Pule Hadu. The latter word is the genitive form of the term Hades, Hadu or Hades. And by genitive, genitive, we mean it's a prepositional phrase, the gates of Hades. In the New Testament, the expression Pule Hadu occurs only here in Matthew 16, 18. That's it. This is the only place we find this particular phrase. However, the term Hadu or Hades does occur elsewhere as a reference to the grave. For instance, Peter at Pentecost preached on the resurrection of Christ from Hades, from the grave. Citing the Old Testament, Peter proved that Christ's body would not see corruption. It would not decompose in the grave. Same word. The term gates refers to an entrance. Gates were the entrance to a city. And the most obvious interpretation is that Jesus is referring to the entrance to the grave. Now, granted, the phrase is idiomatic. In English, we don't typically refer to a grave as having a gate on it. But we do use idioms all the time. Speaking of death, we say things like six feet under or passed away or kick the bucket. In Greek, the phrase gates of Hades was actually a widely used idiomatic expression to refer to death or someone dying. 
Now, when Jesus says the entrance of the grave will not, catascuo, that is, win a victory over it, what does he mean? Jesus is claiming the entrance to the grave will not win a victory over the church. That is just the plain, self-evident reading of the passage. And we know this because in three verses, just three verses later, Jesus will explain for the first time, actually, that he will go to Jerusalem, he will die, and he will be raised in three days. Why? Because the grave will not win a victory over him. He's the founder of the church. Likewise, Jesus promises later in the chapter that if you're martyred for him, you will find life. Why? Because the grave will not win a victory over his church. Later in the New Testament, we are told that physical death has no power over anyone in Christ's church. 1 Corinthians 15 and verse 55, O Hades, where is thy victory? O grave, where is thy victory? Death does not conquer the believer. Or Revelation 4 and verse 17, I'm sorry, 1 and verse 17, Christ explains that Hades has no power over the church. He says, I have the keys of Hades. I have the key of the grave and of death. So contextually, Gates of Hades actually has nothing to do with Satan's government trying to conquer the church. Now again, the phrase Gates of Hades occurs only here in the New Testament, but it does occur in the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament, in Isaiah 38 and verse 10, where it translates the Hebrew phrase Gates of Sheol. Same phrase, just two different languages. And in that context, Hezekiah has become sick, ill, to the point of death. But God granted him 15 more years of life. So what does Hezekiah do about this gracious extension of life? Here's what he does. He writes a poem. And he celebrates the fact that God delivered him, get this, out of the gates of Sheol. Septuagint, out of the gates of Hades. God graciously gave him 15 more years of life. Hezekiah was not imagining some sort of underworld government of hell ruled by Satan. In fact, this phrase, gates of Hades, occurs often in contemporary extra-biblical literature with precisely the same meaning. In the Wisdom of Solomon, or Third Maccabees, or Psalm of Solomon, or the Iliad, or Agamemnon, we find the phrase, gates of Hades, referring to the grave. Now, if you interpret gates of Hades as some sort of satanic government of hell, you actually create an enormous theological difficulty for yourself. If believers like Hezekiah go into Hades when they die, and if Satan rules over Hades, well, then Satan must rule departed believers who pass through his gates. Jesus himself, we are told in Acts 2, entered Hades when he entered the grave. And there were some in the early church, like the church father Origen, who held that Jesus paid a ransom to Satan This view is reprehensible. Jesus came to destroy the works of the devil, not to pay a ransom to him. Friends, the scriptures, understand this, nowhere speak of death 
or hell having a government, or Catholic powers conspiring together in the gates against God. Do we know what hell is? Hell is Satan's final judgment. It is not his dominion. It is not his kingdom. During this age, Satan is present in three localities. He can go into heaven. We learn this in Job. He can inhabit the earth and its atmosphere, space out there, and he can possess wicked men. But he is never in hell. Satan has never been to hell. The notion that he sits in the center of hell like a scaly red dragon holding a pitchfork and sending demons out to do his bidding, friends, that is a medieval notion that comes from Dante's Inferno, not the Bible. To speak of a government of hell actually undermines God's sovereignty over his defeated foe. Friends, when God casts Satan in the lake of fire, he's done. He has no government down there. So friends, with all this background, are we quite convinced that Christ rules the nations, not Satan? Here's what Jesus said, John 12 and verse 31, the ruler of this world was cast out. John 16, the spirit comes to convict us that the ruler of this world is judged. So how do we really apply this? Well, let's turn finally to Romans chapter 16. Romans chapter 16, and let's discover how Paul applies this to the church. And as you return, remember that already not yet language that we have seen so often. We are saved already, but not yet. I still live in a sin cursed world. We are resurrected with Christ. That's Romans but not yet bodily resurrected. We are adopted. We call God Father, Romans 8. But Romans 8 also speaks of the adoption being the final redemption of our bodies. Already, not yet. All right? Likewise, Satan has been destroyed already. It's done. Like a mortally wounded lion, he still prowls around seeking whom he may devour. He is dangerous. One of my professors describes Satan as a heart-shot deer, just tearing off the woods in great wrath. But he's got a mortal wound. So how then do we live between these two advents? Christ destroyed Satan in his first advent. And when he comes again, he will cast him into a lake of fire. So how do we live in between? Well, notice the balance that Paul achieves in verses 19 and 20. Here is his concluding exhortation to the Roman Christians. For your obedience is known to all, so that I rejoice over you. But I want you, you Christians, to be wise as to what is good and innocent as to what is evil. There is evil in the world. Verse 20, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. In verse 20, when you are in the throes of temptation and assault, friends, just hold on. Cling to the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. Your dragon slayer will come. He will soon crush Satan under your feet. 
He is on a short leash. He can only go so far. The fact is, friends, you do not have to live under that sin any longer. Even though the power is strong, the grace of Christ is coming for you. You don't have to live with that addiction any longer, even though the pull is very strong. The grace of Christ is coming for you. You don't have to live slavishly following the world and the devil. You don't have to live in fear of endless, diabolical things happening in the world. You don't actually have to let the continuous news cycle keep you defeated. And believe me, it's pretty bad most of the time. And in fact, you don't have to listen to all those voices who would deny the reign of Christ. Hold on. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Paul was speaking, friends, to real Christians, real Christians in the first century who experienced Christ's power over Satan. And notice what else Paul says in verse 19. To be wise as to what is good and innocent as to what is evil. And Paul is speaking here about a balance that emphasizes what is good and wholesome. We actually don't need to endlessly inform ourselves about all the evil in the world. Some Christians seem to think that their spiritual gift is actually discerning evil. But in many cases, it's an excuse to spend enormous amounts of time obsessing over evil and actually not accomplishing a whole lot of good for Christ's kingdom. Some Christians see their mission as constantly informing others about what's really going on. But in many instances, those same individuals don't seem all that well informed about the advance of the gospel of the nations. That's also going on. Now again, let's not misunderstand, all right? We do need to understand the world and its thinking. Paul, uh, Paul was a student, if you recall, of the proto-Gnostic heresy that actually gained a foothold in Asia Minor. Paul understood, obviously, the dangers of Epicureanism and Stoicism and Judaism and false worldviews that permeated the empire. You pick up on this in Acts. He understood those worldviews very clearly. And it is true that God has given individuals a task of protecting the church. That is true of elders. They have a God-given duty to protect the flock and to be discerning and wise and understand where evil is coming from. Paul labored enormously to protect the flock. But when you think about Paul, do you, do you get the sense that he was really obsessed with all the evil in the world? Or where was his priority? And that's what I'm after. Paul says, be wise as to what is good and innocent as to what is evil. It would actually be better to be informed about the gospel and misinformed about the world than the other way around. So I just want to encourage us all to give the strength of our minds to that which is good. Give your better hours to reading good, wholesome material. Listen to good, wholesome podcasts that will encourage you in your mission for Christ. Listen to good preaching. There are good things you can read out there. Now, I'm not saying ignore all the evil in the world. You have to know it. You have to be aware of it. But don't get off balance. Be wise as to what is good and innocent as to what is evil.